0: So I'm joined today by Steve Horton, owner of Baker's Field and Flower out in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks for being here, Steve.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And by the way, this is a um, a very special episode because it's actually the first one that we're doing with video. So oh. thanks for oh. participating.
1: Wow. I should have told me I had my hair done. <laughs> yeah.
0: Just I did brush my hair. Oh but good. That's about it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so for, for anyone who's listening um, to this, and if you want to watch it, you can just head over to our YouTube channel, which is Sustainability Matters Today. Um, but Steve, Happy New Year. It's uh, We're at the very beginning of January.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a change for us. We're just off coming off a pretty busy December. Uh, you know, really, we're focused on, since we mill our own flour and make our own bread, yeah. and some pastry items, um, you know, December was for obvious reasons, quite
0: busy. Yeah, you know, I bet that's um, both good and bad. Good because- yeah,
1: yeah, all good. And just everyone's kind of, you know, just recovering now or just
0: yeah. uh,
1: back in sync, just about.
0: The f- very first thing I, I want to say um, is that I, I don't know many bakers, but I have certainly never heard of bread being described as uh, that you can, you can savor bread or grain like chocolate or wine.
1: Absolutely, yeah, we, we believe it, you know, we, we, uh, we uh, prescribe to that, that notion that, that uh, the levels and uh, the nuances that are in bread and in grain specifically just need to be developed within your palate, um, and, and we're still working on that, of course, but uh, we feel it's akin to chocolate or wine in terms of how, how, we, how, we, how we think about it.
0: Yeah, it's it's incredible because you you write on your website that you basically explore the local sources and and in terms of highlighting the terroir of yes. different farms and grain varietals. Um, so your whole thing is about focusing on the grains of the Upper Midwest, which is basically near Minneapolis and Minnesota. Um,
1: exactly. We're we're our our original goal was to be as Minnesota focused as we could. Yeah numerous reasons, part of it being, uh, we, we felt like Minnesota grains is, is, is overlooked in a way, because mm-hmm. a lot of the grain, especially spring weeds, winter weeds are grown um, in Kansas, Oklahoma, you know, it, it, but the Dakotas, Minnesota, even into Wisconsin, there's there's still quite a bit of, of grain grown. And we wanted to highlight that as much as we could. So that's our focus, partly coming back to sustainability as well, as the number of food miles we're putting on True. that grain. So. You know we've had a lot of people reach out to us from nebraska and kansas who would love to sell us grain but it's it's while i'm sure the quality is great it, it's it's a little bit against what we're trying to achieve here so
0: yeah that makes sense you just have your set values and you're sticking to them right,
1: right. It, it's sometimes difficult because it's it's difficult sometimes to get everything that we'd like to get the mm. uh, so uh, the quality in some cases so um,
0: so we have to make choices based on that. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, kind of pros and cons of every decision you make. Okay, exactly. um, so can you actually, I'm, I'm just so curious, because I've heard of wine connoisseurs being able to taste the terroir and being able to taste different grapes and all of that. So like, can you actually taste the difference between grains? If you Have you done like a blind taste test and actually tried?
1: I, I haven't done blind, but what we do is, is... – um, when we get a grain in and we're figuring out, first we, we wanna figure out how it tastes, but we also wanna know what its functionality is. So many bakers will look at protein percentages in flour, for example, as mm-hmm. a, sometimes it's a starting and ending point for people, but for us it's just a starting point because protein percentage can be indicative of the strength or weakness of a flour. So when I think of strength and weakness, I think of elasticity and extensibility, and there's a kind of a continuum there. Um, and so we want to look at what's the functionality of that of that particular grain, how will it hold up in mixing, how will it hold up in fermentation, and what kind of product generally is it geared more towards. So as an example, uh, we have a spring wheat that we use, a hard red spring wheat called bowls, it's just the name of it. Um, and it has a high pr- protein percentage, it also behaves like what you would expect a high protein percentage grain to behave as, which is it creates a lot of elasticity, creates a lot of volume, um, and has um, great... Mixing and fermentation tolerance, so that means it's just going to hold up really well throughout the whole
0: process. And what's that good for in terms of the type of bread you can make with it? Sure.
1: So well, we we do make some pan breads. We make a brioche, and then we Ooh. also every day kind of sandwich loaf and hamburger mm-hmm. buns. Uh, oh, I
0: see. Kind of poofy, springy, yeah,
1: a little more airy, a little you know you're looking for something with a little bit of a pop to it, and yeah. this particular grain works really well for that. Now, on the downside is I don't actually think it tastes like much. It has, it has almost an emptiness to it. Um, there's there's definitely terroir there, and, and it has a little bit of nuance. But when I compare that to, say, for example, a grain that we have had in the past that we're trying to get back into this next year is linkert. Um, is another hard red spring wheat, but there's a, just a much different level of flavor there in terms of there's some nuttiness. There's a, a complexity that stays and kind of really... Hangs around in your mouth. Like when you eat a really great piece of chocolate or even anything that has some some Real depth to it. It yeah. stays in your mouth. You know what I mean? It lingers and lingers And that's some of the, what we're talking about with it be the earthiness or nuttiness Those things those aspects of flavor really remain in your mouth and in the bowls It's a one note and it's gone um, I see. So we we tend to highlight that with maybe a little bit of fat like butter you put in the bread right. So it's bringing out some other flavors in addition to the natural leavening, which is what we do trying to bring those flavors it as well. So that's kind of where we start. We look at it. How does it taste? How is it? How does it perform? What's the best use for it? And then we'll do a comparison with a different grain and see which one, you know, what works best for what we're trying to achieve. So to answer your question, long answer, uh, I I can't do a blind taste test probably, but I can do it side by side and tell you what I'm tasting and what the differences are and why we choose one over the other. So we're still developing that. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of spring weeds and winter weeds out there, and we've just scratched the surface. We've yeah. used so far so um, speaking of
0: hundreds of hundreds of wheat I, I, or varieties I've, i recently discovered that in india there's uh, there used to be like over one million different varieties of rice and each one has its own unique flavor profile and it can be it's probably similar it has different protein and starch percentages and so it, it's sure. good for certain things and Absolutely. so hundreds and hundreds of if you think about that um hundreds of hundreds of wheat varieties it makes a lot of sense there's nothing i mean in nature there's so many different kinds of varieties of everything you can't just have one of the same thing so do you ever um travel around the country tasting the bread of other bakers and kind of sit there and close your eyes and
1: I have one well, before we opened. Um, yeah. it, it opened for about three and a half years. And prior to that, I traveled to North Carolina and to Vermont. Um, both places had mill bakeries. Um, yeah. So to pick their brains in terms of, because at that point, I had no milling knowledge at all. Mm. Um, and it's been quite a learning curve over those three and a half years. But really to start to learn what it meant to mill your own flour in the yeah. environment you're baking and these were predominantly bakers who learned how to mill as well and so i learned like how they approached what they did and and what their bread tasted like and you know be it commercially yeasted or naturally leavened or however they were going about their business um and it's very much very regional here um you know what what grows well here does not necessarily grow well in vermont um it may or may not Um, it, you know, even though there's, our, our growing seasons and climate is somewhat similar, but mm. uh, California, for example, is much different than here in terms of what the growing season looks like, in terms of the temperature extremes and everything else. So the grains that do well here are not so the ones that do well there as well, as so, an example. So I have done some of that. Um, the gentleman that built our mill, uh, Andrew Hain, who's located in Vermont, has a company called Elmore Mountain, and they're bakers um, and millers. But he also builds mills. Right. And at the time, the mill he built for us was the largest one he had built. Um, that was just relevant because he still he works on a smaller scale. Like most of the mills he builds are roughly thirty to forty-eight inch stones. Mm-hmm. So as far as one, you know, the diameter, um, a bedstone and a runner stone. And so we have a stone mill uh, system that we employ, um, and then we also use a sifting system. Using pneumatics, which is air tubes, to move the flour from whole grain status into a sifter, because we do sift uh, about 60% of the flour that we mill, which is bolted or sifted flowers, which you would buy in many grocery stores um, in the U.S. at as well. Where a lot of that flour has been stripped down of the germ and the bran, in order to create uh, shelf life and stability, but by doing so, you've eliminated most of the nutrients um, and a lot of the flavor aspects of it, because most of those Fats and nutrients and minerals are all in those in the germ. And so, when we sift, we the way we screen out our flour, we try to hold back as much of the germ and some of the bran as we can. So, a typical oh, industrial flour is about 70% extraction of the grain, and ours is about 83 to 85% roughly, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit on the grain. But, um, and so, what we're trying to do there is bring that in, and, and that's really where you get the difference in terms of ash content. And the overall kind of creaminess of the of the flour in terms of how it looks Got it. compared to a whiter flour. So,
0: so that's um, that's why you've gone through the whole ordeal of actually having a mill at your bakery.
1: Right. Exactly. That was that was the biggest aspect. When I I had a bakery before um, a few years ago that I sold, and one of the interesting things about Minneapolis was it was at one point the largest um, flour production facilities or was the largest producing uh, city in the in the world for flour um but that's the
0: name mill city
1: exactly (laughs) it's the name Mill city but over the early 20th century slowly that moved mainly for transportation purposes reasons to the eastern part of the u.s with the great lakes and 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 um, distribution point from there and while it was still relevant here over the decades in the latter part of the 20th century more and more there's very few, there are very few operating mills in this area anymore of any size. They've all moved to the population centers because it's a lot cheaper to ship the grain mills flour near the population center than it is to do it the other way around. Um, And so because of that though, we we ended up with, um, you know, an interesting kind of, I wouldn't say void, but we're, we're very locked in in terms of what flour we're able to get. So we have a few big, big companies, multinational, uh, General Mills, Cargill, Base State—they are the three big ones that we can buy flour from if you're a local baker through a distributor. Well, that limits you to four or five bread flours, for example, and that's great. Except everybody's using the same flour, and so the the kind of what is your main base—that's what you do everything with. So how do you how do you differentiate yourself? How do you explore and kind of go with that next step? And that was my idea—is kind of go backwards which many people around the country are doing in a very similar way. Um, how do we, how do we do that? So that's, that's kind of what started the whole process for us.
0: Right. And that, that, that's what basically gives you the control of the percentages that you mentioned yes. yeah. freshest. Well, I mean, if you're milling the flour and, and you're actually basically creating the flour right there and then you're baking with it a couple hours later, I can't imagine flour that's any fresher than that.
1: Right, exactly. That's our goal. When we, we try to mill and then use the flour the next day. That's kind of our more, mostly because of production. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We have to flow into an efficiency. But when we have accounts a order flour, so we sell to restaurants and then we, we bag retail bags as well. With, once an order is placed, our goal is to get that to them within 48 hours. So the idea is again, freshness. Yes, And that highlights, as flour sits, what happens is over time it oxidizes. Mm-hmm. So oxygen Binds with it, it starts to eliminate a lot of those lipids. Those fats go away, in a sense, and and that's where a lot of that flavor component, you know, goes yeah. away. As well, as as well as the nutrients. Now, there is a downside to fresh flour from a production standpoint, is because green or or fresh flour tends to be a little bit more difficult to work with because it takes more hydration usually. Uh, it does not get the same type of volume as a uh, aged flour, even not so much industrial, but an aged flour that's oxidized because I won't go into all the rabbit hole of it. But anyway, that, that's what happens. So you have to adjust your process and your system.
0: Oh, I see. To
1: maximize what you can do.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it's, not, it's not an enormous difference, but if you pay attention, I'd say you get a 10, 15% reduction in a volume. If I were to do a side by side, mix, ferment, bake, the whole process, uh, using a, an aged flour and a fresh flour.
0: So does that mean you need to just use more uh, flour to make the same?
1: Well, we, in our situation, we would use more water. So we, we use what's called in baking. A lot of professional bakers use a baker's percent, which is baker's math, and so everything is based on flour. It's our. It's since it is our primary ingredient. Yeah. It's also basis for everything so that's your hundred percent point so anything that varies from there so water is an example let's say you had a recipe and it was 75% water um, so in, in, you had 10 kilos of flour it would be 7.5 kilos of water mm-hmm. so everything is based on flour it all comes back you have a total recipe you have your pre and then wow. anyway, I'll of that detail but so all of those factors in what you generally will end up doing in fresh with fresh flour is adding a little bit more water. I would say three to five percent, roughly, to make that dough perform the same way. Yeah. Uh, in terms of overall, you know, uh, consistency and and, um, and mm. uh, lift to some degree.
0: So the the mill that you use and you kind of touched on it that it's um that it's stone milled. Yeah. What what is so special about? stone and specifically granite i mean what's are there different kinds of mills that are stone yeah
1: yeah all so mills are really just a tool and and there's a certain romance to stone milling because of course for centuries yeah. that everyone did um and what we like about the stone mill for our purpose is that we are whole grain focused so many of our breads are 100 whole grain or mm. whole grain um and, and for us doing a single pass um, in terms of this, the grain goes through the hopper and down into the stones and then mills out. And so with stone milling, you have three primary functions that are occurring. You have a compression that happens. you have a shearing, and then you have abrasion which occurs over the surface of the stone. Um, and the four variables to control the type of flour you're getting is one, the stone, stone size, which is already set at this point, the speed of the stones, how fast you feed the grain, and then the gap between the runner and the bedstone. So those four variables, three really variables once set,
0: yeah.
1: are what determine what type of flower you get from the particular type of grain. So we have different types of um, uh, parameters that we use for each type of grain that we have. And then we have to adjust it based on time of year or once we redress the stones. Um, and the reason we use granite is uh, composite stones can work well too, but we've found for what we're trying to achieve that uh the, the granite i think is a little bit more functional mm. uh, some of the larger stone mills that are built do use composite stones so it's not and then part of that is is functionality part of it is cost i think um, at least from our perspective you know we found it uh it worked out really well for our purposes but yeah. you have to continue to redress the stone so it really depends on use like right now, about every two to three months, we're taking the mill apart. We have a crane that basically sits above the mill all the time and lifts up the one stone. We redress it with a stone cutter to rough it up, in a sense.
0: Oh, I see. And
1: that compression, shearing, and all of those elements to make the, the grain consistent piece of, make it into consistent flour. Yeah. Uh, so those, those are kind of all of that, the, the, the reasons why. But from a stone milling standpoint, we find that stone mills work well for whole grain flour. So traditionally, roller milling, when it, when whole grain flour is produced off of a roller mill, it's all broken out into multiple uh, pieces and then put back together. And so what ends up happening is all of those different components are, are milled to different consistencies. So when you put that all back together, it's not the same consistency. And for a baker, it's, it's a lot easier to produce consistent bread if your flour particles are pretty much even. Yeah, uh, there's a variance, of course, but when you talk about one versus the other, it made more sense for us to go this route. So, that was part of the consideration. Another was cost, frankly, uh, for what we were trying to do in the infrastructure we need to put in place. This worked really well for what we were trying to achieve. So, uh, mm-hmm. I think it really is tools are important, but it's how you use the tool because we could use a roller mill and still try to achieve what we're doing, which would just be a different way of going about it.
0: Got it. That's um. Yeah, There's probably a
1: lot of too more, too much information. I don't
0: know. Well, I I mean I have absolutely no background in in how the I see when I, I go to the store, I see bread, and I just think, yeah. wow, some some of it's delicious, some of it's not so much, but
1: mm-hmm. it's
0: interesting that I mean it's obviously a science and an art and it's wonderful right. to hear the hear it all. Um When I I first heard or read that you use a stone mill, I mean, the first thing I thought of is a a big windmill. uh, Right, yeah. Yeah, horses. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. You mentioned India earlier. In India, there are many, many small little mills that are based in neighborhoods and people bring their grain to these mills, they mill the flour, then they take it home. And India tends to be hot, right? It's from a temperature standpoint. So these mills run... They They've run very very fast because of course in order to make this work they need to be milling the flour fairly quickly so they're producing flour that's quite hot hmm. and there's been some some initial research into because anecdotally there's a lot of people that think that hot flour means that this the, the, the nutrients start to degrade that the flour itself is not as ideal as if it were milled at a cooler temperature um, but a lot of cases, it hasn't been as relevant in India because they use the flour right away; it doesn't sit around, you know. So, yeah. but it, it's interesting because there's a there's a huge kind of history of stone milling there um, versus kind of went away for us in a while for the, in this country at least. We we really went away from it, um, and there are a lot of areas that have derelict you know buildings or even just stone mm. stones around. But now, in the last I'd say 10 years, especially, there's been a kind of almost a revival, and there are. I'm not even sure. Probably 40 to 50 uh, operations that are similar in scope of what we're doing in terms of you know milling and baking or farming and milling, and most of them are using stone mills. Interesting. Um, a lot of it has to do with you know uh, ease of use, longevity, all of those type of
0: things. So. Yeah, but it makes sense. I mean, I think there's a lot of it's kind of there's always the counterculture when things start leaning too far in one direction, then starts kind of going like vinyl is now coming is, is becoming cool again and uh stone milling is I'm, I'm guessing similar because like you were saying you have these big corporations that all make the same exact flour um and you know there, there are people who just like with micro brewing as well with beer i would imagine it's similar with with bread and any other food or drink product really it's like you'd want to try the local the micro it's like micro bread almost micro micro baking right
1: exactly and that's that is our perspective we feel like you know that is our perspective and we're a little bit ahead of our our market here in the twin cities Mm -hmm. no one else is doing that there's one small mill here about our size a little smaller but they don't bake they sell their flour um there's some smaller regional mills that are bigger than we are but for the most part in this in this area nobody else is doing this you have to go all the way to madison which is about four and a half, five hours to find yeah. some doing it. Um, or wow. Chicago, you know, which is six or seven hours away. So there are people around the country doing it, but not really so much in this market. So we're, we're having to tell our story um, a lot to yeah. people. And, and that's good, but it also sometimes doesn't resonate depending on the customer and their experience. Like, what do you mean you know your own flour? I think we just get this kind of, you know, glazed look from them. Sometimes we get a very much engaged depending on the customer. Like they get it, they understand it, they want to know more. And th- those are the people that tend to have a little bit more, um, you know, their identity tied to what they eat, where it's sourced, how it's sourced, all of those
0: things. Yeah. I mean, I think a big part of why people don't even understand the, the glazed look um, yeah. it is i d I don't think people even realize what the process is. You know, they kind no, of know
1: people have um, no idea. What do yeah. you mean it's rain ground and then it's milled and then or you then know, it's cleaned and then it's sort of de and cleaned and then milled and they made it either you know, what?
0: Yeah, you know, they, they just I thought fries. you just make yeah. bread.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's sliced, it's in a plastic bag, I take it off. Yeah. Exactly. A little bit of a difference, yeah. So that that process in food in general is you know, is depending on where you are, I always feel like Minnesota is about five years behind the food trends that are happening on the East and West Coast here. Um, That's probably not true, but it feels sometimes like that when I go to the West or East Coast. Um, And I know a friend of mine who's a baker here is from California, and he's been here for seven, eight years, and he's just still always flummoxed by the fact that we can't sell our bread for this amount of money that they can sell out of California. So what we would sell for four or $5, they would sell for seven or eight. Wow. Um, and just the difference in terms of customer expectations, um, you know, the, the, the frequency of purchasing, all of those things. I mean, Minnesota is unique. The twin cities is unique too, because of the geography. Mm-hmm. We have uh, you can fit all of London in our seven County area, but London's population is probably three times what we, I think the Metro is, I want to say it's about three and a half, four million people here. So it's very spread. out. And the core cities are, are denser, but they're not what you would call like a dense city. And so we have a, a geography challenge here as well. And so people's frequency of purchases is based on convenience more than anything else, which is my opinion. And um, and so if they're going to make a choice and it's snowing between going to a bakery or going to the grocery store, which they're already going to,
0: yeah.
1: grocery store. So I mean that's just been my experience over 20 years, but it's it's an interesting dilemma for us.
0: So yeah, it's interesting that kind of dovetails nicely into what exactly is local in that case, because uh, uh, I imagine local for you might be very different than what local means to someone in in London, for example, or in the UK, where it's everything is just much closer together in right. general.
1: Exactly. I mean, I I can't I. It, local to me, in some ways, at least from a marketing standpoint, has become like the word natural, yeah, uh, and and even to some degree organic, here, at mm-hmm. least in the U.S. And so, I think of local more based on relationships, um, and I think of it as what's what interesting, you know, what makes sense is you know, really, you know, yeah. really make sense for us to buy from Nebraska when it's you know, four hundred miles away. Yeah. Probably not a local thing anymore, you know, is it is it a hard and fast rule? No, because we do buy some spelt, for example, from Michigan, because Michigan is 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 the predominant area where most spelt in the U.S., not all, but a large percentage of it is grown, de-hulled and cleaned and all that. Mm-hmm. So we do get some spelt benefits. from there, it's not really local, so, you know, it, it becomes one of these things that we have to weigh all the time in terms yeah. of what we can achieve. But, Primarily it's about relationships and it's about trying to build uh, for us a grain economy. We're trying to learn from the large corporations uh, like General Mills and Cargill. They did a very good job of building an infrastructure that works really well for them, Um, except that somebody like us, we can't exist in that type of of, uh, infrastructure because we're too small. We can't buy enough grain, we can't store enough grain, we can't clean it in a way that fits anywhere on that scale. So we have to think about it in terms of how do we make it work. So as an example, I know you talked to Luke Peterson.
0: Yeah,
1: um, he's one of my favorite people, and he's um, you talk about somebody who's totally all in, just put all your chips in, and he's ready to go. Um, and he he lives his he lives his beliefs every day. Um, he he grows about two and a half hours from us, roughly uh, west straight west, and. His farm's there. Now his grain is, he grows it, he harvests it. Then what do we do with it? Um, we need to get it cleaned. Um, in order to mill it, we need to get it milled or cleaned to a pretty close to a food grade, or 2 a food grade quality, I would say. Um, and so using elevator systems, which is what the larger you know, corporations do to bring grain in, store it, clean it, move it. It's not It's not even, it's not functional for them or us. Because we would just our grain from Luke would just get sorted in with other grain. Oh,
0: I see. It gets lost too.
1: Yeah, it would no longer be single line. So what we need to do is figure out how to clean it. So we've gone to seed houses, which operate on a much smaller level, um, and they will clean our grain and ship it to us. Now we're still too small for most of those seed houses. They want to operate on a, for example, seven eight hundred bushels is ideal for them, which is an entire semi load. We can't store that much. That's about 20 pallets. I can hold 22 pallets in my in our space. So if I get an entire ship, uh, shipment in one semi, I have one particular kind of grain. I now have almost no room left for any other grain. Hmm. So we need to be able to balance and have flexibility with the farmers that we work with in the cleaning system and the storage, all of that. So that's why I start to talk about how do we create a grain infrastructure, a grain economy yeah. that we for everybody. It has to work for the farmers first. Then where do we get these pieces and move this forward? So as an example, Luke's looking at putting cleaning equipment on his farm. He's purchased a lot of it.
0: Oh wow.
1: He would actually clean all of it, he would store it and then bag it and ship it to us. Now for him, he would capture all of those dollars because we pay him for grain, we pay a cleaner, pay a shipping company, all of these different elements. But now if it all goes to Luke, then hopefully that helps. It's worth his while,
0: you know. Absolutely.
1: But these are all the factors that we're dealing with. Our biggest challenge is storage That's the biggest challenge.
0: So, so he could actually store some of it for you
1: yes in some cases some farmers have bins that they can store grain in but it needs to be cleaned first to make right. sure it doesn't have um uh, toxin levels you know we have to get the grain tested there's two primary toxins that we're worried about aflatoxin and vomitoxin and the usda is concerned so they have to be below these certain minimum thresholds in order for it to be stable so you can get it cleaned and take a lot of that out hmm cleaning system and then it's much
0: more stable as long as it's kept in. So you you mentioned the word sustainable in two different ways so far. Um, You've mentioned business sustainability, which obviously is very important. As you said, if it doesn't work for the farmer, um, then it doesn't work at all. And you're a business. So from that point of view, being, having a sustainable business is important. Um, And it's, I think it's a crucial part of environmental sustainability too, which is, Mm You know, if you're going to be environmentally friendly, it has to make sense from a financial standpoint. Because unless you're a nonprofit and you can just keep fundraising, there's no okay. way to to make it work really. So, um, I'm I'm curious to know. I mean, how does the how does that that work? You mentioned that um, I think you said local was is similar to like natural now, um, but you you still do use it for farm um, for marketing rather. So it's an important part okay. of the story.
1: do uh so at least i think nationally is true but especially in this market we have we have a lot of restaurants that use um the words local and they put their vendors on their their menus example and some of that is true there is a definite commitment to some ingredients and products but when you start to talk about local and commitment when you use a ingredient on a menu item and it's, you know, seasonal, that's great. I'm not dismissing it. But when I start to think about local, I in order to move the needle for somebody like Luke, we need to be buying large percentages of what they produce. Yeah. Um, and so to me, local is more than just I bought this ingredient or I occasionally buy these ingredients. It's a it's a commitment. It's a it's a level of saying, hey, we're we're in this. Um, and we have we have a lot of a lot of, I would call it just lip service. You know, it looks great because people want to feel that, they want to feel good, like, oh, I'm supporting the local initiative. Mm-hmm. In most cases, I don't. I feel like it's, it, it rings a little hollow. So um, we have a couple of restaurants here that are, are very local, like almost everything they buy is within a certain radius. And, you know, there's not, I'm not necessarily saying better or worse, you know, that's for everyone else to just decide. But what I'm saying is if you're going to say it's what you're doing, then it better be what you're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mind um otherwise i just don't i understand the marketing aspect of it i just it's it it was a waste of energy and time for
0: me yeah i think so that's the the whole issue of greenwashing which is kind of the anti buzzword, i guess um just you know saying that it's it's local but you're kind of massaging it in order to make it fit so you can yeah it looks good you can raise your prices now because it fits the the term local like you said natural uh and I think you're right with the word organic as well it's kind of starting to lose that the pureness of and actually that's something Luke mentioned as well um, that he thinks the word organic has basically lost its original meaning and so he's using the word or the term regenerative yeah um, which I know you you're interested in as well so I and I know you have a a few partners that you work with in terms of um, uh, you know Luke being one of them and there's a a few other farmers where you source your grains Um, so Based on what Luke said, he has a very specific way that he farms. And it's, it's pretty intense, especially if you compare it to the, to the regular um, kind of the the conventional farming. Right. Um, but I'm curious to know, I mean, do you actually check the farms? Do you go there? Do you meet with Luke or do you, how, how do you know that he's actually.
1: That's a good question. I I haven't visited all the farms. Uh, one of them is about five hours away and I, Frankly, I, I need to do that this year. That's one of the things that's on my list of, of
0: 2020 uh, resolution.
1: It, well, it's not even a resolution; it's a it's a commitment. We've got a lot of things on our plate that we're trying to achieve this year, but yeah. one of them is that. And um, I've, um, i I've i you know I I basically taken their word at it. And before um, I talk to them, I meet with them. Many all of our farmers have been to the building multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the farmers actually deliver the grain themselves. Okay. Um, so we, we have uh, uh, discussions. We, we've had some panels of just uh, a couple years ago. There's a lady named Amy Holloran who, um who is a big grain, local grain proponent. She was in um, on the East Coast. Um, and she was here and she helped run a, a basically a MOOC was on it, a, uh, a panel of people that were in, um, you know, either growers and farmers, uh, processors, people in food. And we talked about what it means to have a grain economy, but um, we started, you know, we started to look at how things are grown, how they're processed. Yeah. So really I've, I've taken their word for it. There isn't a regenerative certificate for se. there is an organic certificate. So I have all of that information, but as far as from, no, I haven't, I haven't gone through it. The only actual direct evidence we have is uh, we, the guy that owns our building, I was saying Kieran who's involved, who also owns our business is, um, he contracted with a videographer and he went out and spent several days with luke and filmed his his farm and this process and so we have that video which actually runs in a loop at the building all day long okay. uh, yeah and they're hoping to add other ones for the other brands as well at some point but so that's our only real like link to what he's doing but mm. i don't have any sort of like you know hard evidence yeah
0: but i think it sounds like you you really find regenerative agriculture to be the way to do it based on what i've what yeah, i've seen I,
1: I think so i mean for me it's beyond organic it's about soil health yeah uh, when we start to look at there's been a lot of initiatives in minnesota we have a big erosion problem here um so 98 of the grain the wheat that's grown in minnesota is spring wheat so that means it's planted here in march maybe april harvested in august and september so those fields are brown the rest of the year for the most part and so what that means is it lends itself to a lot of erosion a lot of soil loss and soil health here is an issue as it is in many many areas around the world Um, but we've intensively farmed for so long using a lot of chemicals be it pesticides or herbicides that we've we've really done a disservice to our soil and our water system Um, and so to me regenerative is is the way it, it it not only is sustainable it it makes business sense because the long term I, I just don't believe that science and chemicals is the way to go in the long run um it, it's it's a race to the bottom basically yeah. so what luke's trying to do in, in demonstrating success through that is is to me where i hope farmers <laughs> are starting to go and you know it, it, the market's going to drive that you know subsidies are going to drive that so That's it's fair. a big discussion the farm bill you want to get somebody going ask luke about the farm bill you can really he can really, he's looked at it. He's broken it down, and um, you know the subsidies wow. go to the, the to the big guys. Really, you know they don't they don't go to the small people. like Luke. So
0: yeah,
1: uh, but yeah, that's where I do believe that the difference is in terms of agriculture. because It's about soil health more than anything else, mm-hmm. and that's created by all the things he talked about: diversity, crop rotations. You know, um, livestock, crops,
0: yeah, crops,
1: everything, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. That was one of the biggest things that, that Luke was talking about is that um, basically the only way that he can continue growing in a regenerative style, um, the way that he does it and the way there are other farmers who do it, is if people buy his product. Um, so actually, you're one of the most important people uh, in, in terms of moving this kind of farming style forward because if if you don't buy it then he can't really continue growing it because the way he does it is more labor intensive so the, the cost is different it's not on par with what a big conventional farmer with thousands of acres would be able to get so um, you're you're kind of a key player in fact I would say you are the
1: car' You know, um, we we and that that gravity of that hits me sometimes. You yeah, know? Um, it's a great it's a great position to be in, but it's also a lot of weight sometimes because the fact that I come back to what I talked about with our customers, for example, you know, um, if people are willing to spend six dollars versus four or seven versus five, those dollars make a lot of difference in the long run because that means we can pay the people that are producing our primary ingredients um, a lot you know, more money. Yeah. And that's the only way that this will continue to make sense for everyone. And, and so it's it's incumbent upon us to be able to be better marketers, which we have not been great at. That's by far our biggest weakness. Marketing and sales in terms of getting out there, we do a lot of demos at the, we, we have a lot of food co-ops in the Twin Cities, so they're owned by the, by the customers. Um, it's kind of food co-op, uh, co-op central here in the U.S. Um, cool. And that's our primary outlet for most of our bread and flour. Um, And so getting in front of those folks and talking about our story and getting them to sample the products and and that. And, of course, ultimately, it's about execution for us. We have to build a mill well and bake well and everything else. But um, if we can't move the needle with that and get market penetration and start to have people view bread, you know, they'll spend six, seven, eight dollars for a beer, micro beer, which is great but to spend $6 on a loaf of bread that's going to last them longer than the 10 minutes or whatever that they take to drink beer. It's a mindset shift. And you know, you're, 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 you're working up against, you're going up the hill. So it's just, it takes time, it takes a lot of efforts. Um, and being a small business, it, you know, we have to kind of do it through guerrilla marketing really. So we're not going to, we don't have a budget to
0: yeah.
1: airwaves, you know, so it's a, uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of that, but ultimately the, the payoff is that hopefully we can begin to move the needle in the
0: direction that I hope it's going. Right? Yeah, I'd imagine guerrilla marketing. I, I know that you're that you do have some uh, restaurants where you where you serve bread um, yeah. and, and your, your bread products. So I imagine that's those are one of some of your biggest um, avenues, or they could be, especially if if they listed on the menu.
1: Yes, yeah, that and then the other one is, of many of the really higher end restaurants, as far as expensive and, and quality, are, they have their own baking programs. And um, that was a shift that happened 10 or 15 years ago for various reasons. But anyway, um, they buy, most of those places buy our flour. And so they do list it. And so that's a way for us to, again, like you said, make make it kind of a pre- our presence known in the customer's yeah. But also we've done classes, we do tours. Okay. Okay. Uh, before uh, the, the restaurant opened in the building earlier this year that highlights all of our products, uh, including Red Table and Alomar. But before that, we used to do pop-ups, in a sense, in the building mm-hmm. and have people come in, you know, once a month or every couple of months. And so all of these ways would get people excited about what we were doing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it just takes time, I think. So yeah. we'll take, There's also been a lot of good national press about, not necessarily us, but like there's a bakery in New Orleans called Bellegarde and they've, they're doing a very similar thing. You know, they're flower, they bake, they're more retail focused, more, more wholesale focused. So it's really a no difference. Um, but they've gotten really great national press. So those type yeah, cool. of really kind of help lift the whole story along in terms of helping people understand where their food comes from.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, talking about the building cause you've mentioned it multiple yeah. times now and yeah. I, I think it's, um, it's a really cool thing because there's, um, Kieran, who owns the building and is a part owner of Bakersfield and Flour and Bread. Um, and so um, the way that um, we were introduced by Jill uh, Colella, sure. uh, and she, the way she she mentioned, I, I, I believe, is that part of the, and I'm just going to take the quote from the email that she wrote, is that part of the appeal of the food building is that each business has large observation windows where visitors can watch makers, and in this case, you're the maker at work, along with various tours slash educational installations that share more detail about each business and its farmer, maker, and purveyor partners. Um, so it sounds like a really interesting place uh, where basically passer passersby can come. And how often do people actually come by and just stand there and watch?
1: It's, it's increased significantly since the restaurant opened. Oh, really? Uh, OK. Yeah. So the, there used to be another restaurant that was owned by a different business. Um, And then that closed. Anyway, Kieran remodeled the space and it's connected to our building. And so people come in and they just wander back throughout the day. And now Jill, Zach, was brought on a couple of months ago. And with her help, there's actually been real marketing going on now. But I think that's sustained efforts, you know. And for example, she did a tour today. I was at work this morning. She did a tour um, where people came in. They paid to be there. She gave a very detailed hour and a half tour, and then they had lunch, and part of it was I had time today, so I had committed to coming out and speaking, you know, monologuing basically like that for 20 minutes, and then I did a sampling with them and talked about what we do and why we do it, and then had them try different breads and what they taste like and that. Um, and so those kind of things are, are, are very uh, instrumental in trying to move the ball forward. But yeah, they, they come down and, and they just stare. You know, we're we're seven days a week and we're kind of in a fishbowl, which is interesting. Red Table is Monday through Friday because they're a United States Department of Agriculture inspected. So anytime you do meat and it travels across state lines, you have to get USDA inspection. Oh, I see. So they're they're based on their hours for inspection, which is Monday through Friday. So they're on the weekends, for example, they're just it's all dark in there. But Alamar's kinda has odd hours because they're always in there turning their cheese and doing everything. But mm. So there's there is some some kind of theater to it, um, but primarily it's us, you know, because we're there. There's somebody there sixteen hours a day. Yeah. So wow. um, yeah. So we're, you know, it is it is interesting. It's it's always funny to see what people sometimes people just stand there for twenty minutes. Sometimes people look for a minute, you know,
0: so you're um, just a goldfish floating. We are
1: goldfish. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's different.
0: Do people ever tap on the glass?
1: Yeah, sometimes they'll talk to us like we can hear them, you know. Like, and they have like, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have so to all have there's
0: machinery them. and there's glass.
1: Right. Exactly. So if we we should put up a little sign like "Don't feed the animals," or, "Don't feed the baker," or something like that. Um, but yeah, but it's it is a it's an interesting model. As far as I know, the restaurant is the only functioning restaurant in a food production space. Mm. So the way the building is constructed, the three businesses that are producing food. Are um, kind of the kind of the anchors really, and then the restaurant is is part of the building. But because you can go and wander through the hallways, and it's also an event space, so oh. that gets shut down periodically when there's an event. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit different that way, um, and it it's still very odd for people, I think, to be able to wander. It, it's it's an interesting and new thing. Where we think there's a food review coming out for the restaurant in two days, which. be really great for them i think it's going to be pretty positive so uh, that'll help bring more people into the building
0: that's really cool and do you provide any products to the restaurant
1: yeah everything uh all the breads all the flour all the everything yeah they they are making some pasta and crackers with the flour we're giving them but for the most part any of the bread that they use for like for soup or sandwiches you know, the the breakfast pastries and all of that type of
0: stuff we're making. Yeah. By, by the way, speaking of um, guerrilla marketing and crackers, um, have, you, have you ever considered working with the, I, I miss the name, but the, the cheese guys?
1: Oh, Alamar, yeah.
0: Alamar, yeah, maybe like a, a cheese and cracker basket. That,
1: yeah, yeah, it's at some point. Um, you know, crackers are hard, at least from, we're pretty small, like there are 11 of us. Um, in order to make money at crackers, it's about volume. <laughs>
0: yeah
1: and got to be able to produce a lot and in order to do that and package it and all of that we'd have to have kind of know that we've got a market for it and we just haven't haven't worked on that i would say that that's at the back end of this year potentially
0: that's cool
1: right now we're really working on them wasserie which is like laminated doughs croissants and danish and things like that Um, all naturally leaven and so uh, we, we don't use any commercial use for example so we're in the R and D stage on that, trying to figure out how to use it with our flour. Mm-hmm. It's a little more challenging because of the fact that, of of the fact that our flour has a lot more ash content to it. But um, anyway, i tell you with all of that. But yeah, we're working on that. So
0: naturally, leaven. That was something I wanted to to ask about. You you, you just okay. mentioned it. What what is that? What how? Is yeah.
1: That? So people think of the word sourdough, right? Okay. And yeah. I try not to use the word sourdough very much, except in the explanation as in, as a starting point, because most people that I talk to the, in this market, when I say sourdough, they think of something very specific. Yeah. San Francisco sour, right?
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. But that is it, it's very limited because you can make a wide range of products with natural leaven process. And I say natural leaven or naturally fermented because that's using the wild yeast and bacteria that are available on the grain and in the flour um, and on you and in the air. Um, and so you can make something mild. You can make something very sharp and acidic, uh, acetic acid type. Uh, you can make a lighter loaf, a denser loaf. There's a wide variation, um, and so that's why I'll start there because people are like, what's that, Ashley lemon? So that's a way to have them ask a question, hopefully, or look confused, and then I answer and yeah. explain um, And so we can make something that has a really open crumb structure, for example, like a regular holes, or make something very, very dense, like 100% rye. Um, it just depends on the cultures we use, the flour we use, the process, the whole thing. So, that's kind of our, our approach, yeah. So
0: what's so. what would unnaturally leavened? Well,
1: so that's commercial yeast. It's not unnatural, it's just commercial yeast. So yeast that has been manufactured. So the, the difference is, is that natural leavening or, or natural fermentation takes a longer uh, amount of time to achieve a similar result. Right. And, and it is different anyway because of the bacteria element to it. But commercial yeast works much, much faster because it's a higher concentration of a leavening agent. Um, they're not even really the same thing. A lot of people say they're cousins, very distant cousins. Mm. The
0: same so, so do you even, do you use yeast? Just the natural
1: wild yeast that is kind of works symbiotically with the bacteria that exists in the pH. Oh, rate. wow.
0: And you, that's, you have enough control in terms of being able to
1: we do but the key to the sourdough natural leavening process really is your your culture maintenance. So people call it culture, chef, mother, all these different Uh, words. We call it our starter. And then when we put the final starter into a dough, we call it our Le It's just for simplicity, that's our nomenclature. But basically, they're all the same kind of ideas. But what is starter maintenance? So we feed our cultures twice a day, every day. We feed them with the same flowers, and we we hit a very specific temperature range. So we keep them at room temperature as well. So keeping all of those parameters, you know, keeping them very closely, uh, um, kind of dialed in, and then documenting all of that information. So if there is a mistake or a problem, we can try to address that. Those are the keys to making sure that you get consistent results. Yeah. In addition to how you mix and you know all those other things, Mm. of course, is the most important. But yeah, so. Those are, those are the keys to that, but um, we have three primary cultures that we have, that we maintain all the time. We have a rye, we have a whole, whole weed, and then we have a one that's a liquid that's a red flower. Um, and then from there we'll we'll spring out in the afternoon and from those three make eight different lavans that we'll use for the next day in the morning. Oh, I see. And so then you just take a piece of those and elaborate it into another. So this constant elaboration that goes on.
0: Wow. It's a living, living organism.
1: It's definitely a living organism. Yeah. You're on the bread. Uh, you're on the dough's life, really. You know, you're, yeah. you're following its cycle. So we control that to a degree, but yeah, you, know, you, you try to you try to control as much as you can. But there are factors that that are always out of our uh, out of our control. Like when it is really, really cold here, no matter how we keep our main room seventy five degrees at all times there's as much as we can. But it definitely makes a difference when it's fifteen below outside. You know that is still going to have an effect on things. Wow,
0: so. that's incredible. What what's um what's your favorite bread that you make?
1: Oh, it varies from time to time. Right now, I've had a we make 100 whole wheat bread called Complete. Is mm-hmm. The name, of it. and I've been um, I've been really enjoying that bread. We started using a sprouted grain um, for that particular bread. One of our farmers grows a hard red spring wheat called Ingmar. And he took a, a large percent a portion of what he had and sprouted it. I had somebody else, a company that does this, a malting company. They sprouted it. So what that means is they 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 soak the soak the grain and then they germinate it. Okay. Uh, and then um, once it starts to germinate at a stage, they 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 drain it and they heat it to a point where it stops the germination. So it's sprouted. So in other words, more of the nutrients and sugars are available. Um, and we um, we have. Uh, some of that grain available. We're using that in this this particular bread. It's the only bread we use it in, um, and I really like the flavor profile that it gives it. And it gives it a whole nother level of of acidity, but also sweetness at the same time. If that makes sense. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And it's always a challenge for us in terms of just getting that bread just right. But anyway, I, oh, yeah. that's kind
0: of an I I'm starting to get hungry. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. Nothing um nothing beats really good bread with just some butter
1: that's that's generally what most people yeah that's what it's they, like, they have to say yeah.
0: it's so simple and yet just so satisfying it's so good right,
1: right. and that's hopefully what we can dial into you know, in terms of you know really trying to bring out that what people's memory sensory memories are yeah. their their family or whatever it happens to be uh, you know we i don't know if this happened in the uk but we had a for about twenty years, I would say there's been this gluten-free slash Atkins push, and yeah, 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 the Atkins thing is for the most part, is has been tempered, but gluten-free is still very much real and and for for good reasons. But it has had an effect on bread in terms of hmm. being demonized or you know, the uh, uh, consumption as well. Just overall consumption is down on bread. So.
0: I was actually going to ask. Um... Sorry, can you say that again?
1: Oh, I always tell people eat more eat more grains, eat yeah. more flour, more bread. It just depends on what kind of grains and flour you know in terms of what your 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 body can take. Yeah. I never oh you, know, you can't eat that or you can't eat this. You have to figure out what works for you. But whole grains are a great way for your for your digestive system to work better. I
0: was I was wondering that in in terms of the way that you know in terms of your product and the grain that you're using. Is there um have you ever heard anyone say actually you know I normally can't eat bread, but this one is okay.
1: Yeah, we get so we do a farmers market um, here, and um, it's called Mill City's Farmers Market um, downtown, and we get that quite a bit every week. Somebody will say that to uh, to our front end people. You know, we, we we I can't eat bread normally, but I can eat this. And a lot of that is we we can go down that road if you want modern heritage, ancient grains, but a lot of it I think has to do with more with fermentation. You know, it turns longer the fermentation process, the more enzymatic activity, the more of the breakdown of uh, mm, I a lot of proteins and starches. So that that most likely is what's making it more digestible. I can't say for sure. The University of Minnesota has actually started a study this past year. They're trying to uh, they're taking in, I believe it's it's over well over hundred samples of different grain, uh, wheat, um, be it ancient, modern, or heritage. And they're trying to map out the genetic codes for these grains. And then they want to do a comparison because a lot of the anecdotal information is that modern wheat is causing a lot of the gluten insensitivity or slash celiac problems versus heritage or ancient grains. Interesting. They don't really have a position on that, but they need, in order to even dive into it, they need to have a basis of information. So they're, they're looking at doing this fairly comprehensive study, which I think is still going to take another year for them to get all of that material figured out. Um, And then I don't know where they start, but their initial theory, at least some of the people that I've talked to there, um, is that it's not the proteins, which is what most people think it is. It's the starch levels, because a lot of modern meats are able to have a higher percentage of starch versus the heritage.
0: Wow, that would be really interesting.
1: We'll see what happens with it. At the end of the day, it's what you can eat. You know, I I say everybody's uh, different. 90% of the U.S. population can still eat meat. 10% of the population is either celiac, gluten sensitive, or gluten-allergic. So um, it still means the majority of people here can eat wheat. It's just a matter of uh, figuring out what works for you.
0: Yeah. I think it's important. Just you know your body, so there's no one else who can really tell you.
1: Oh, yeah, you can eat this. I'm like, try it if you want. It works great. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. You know, uh, good luck. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, um, as we start to wrap up here, um, one of the questions I always like to ask is, um, what are some of the things that, that you do in addition to supporting uh, regenerative farmers on a daily basis um, that are environmentally sustainable, something that maybe can inspire some of our listeners to uh, perhaps take action in their, in their own lives to be a little sure. bit more sustainable?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, it's, um, it's a lot to do with personal choices. Uh, And because we have, uh, I I think a somewhat unique grocery landscape, um, Mm -hmm. we have our traditional grocery stores, we have our Gucci slash boutique grocery stores, but we also have the food co-ops, which tend to be much more focused on organic and local than the conventional grocery stores are. Um, They don't just have a section of it, it's most of their products. And so I I make a commitment to shop there as much as I can um, for most of the products that I buy, Um, because I know that most of those dollars are going back to um, that way the company or the organization that is the co-op, but also in in most cases to farmers who are selling their their products for a higher price than the more conventional uh, system. So that would I would say probably be the biggest thing. Um, You know, I. I I try to. I just try to be a good steward of everything. But I'm sure that I, I being a child of the '60s and '70s, I'm a lot of than, than you may think. Um, uh, maybe not. Uh, but um, I, I have bad habits that I try to break. But anyway, so,
0: I think yeah, doing a little bit. A little bit is better than trying to be perfect and failing, and then not doing anything at all.
1: Right. Exactly. And then being stressed about it or feeling guilty. Um, exactly. You know, I, I, I think it, it has a lot to do with, yeah, the personal choices you make on a daily basis, you know, in terms Absolutely. of, um, you know, uh, globally, I think how you, how you hopefully engage with the world in terms of politics and uh, um, how decisions are made uh, that affect everybody, so, yeah. yeah, farm bill, for example, here, having dialogue, I don't know how it works, in okay, but you can call I'm sure that you can call your representatives here and discuss things that you're concerned about and um, they may or may not listen but at least you have made the effort you know.
0: So. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's I think good advice not definitely remember that we individuals can make an impact and and can as you're as you've been saying move the needle and and um, you know basically inform uh, not only the government but also just producers and makers on what it is that that we value, um, you know, yeah, absolutely. people who purchase from you, they're they are not purchasing from a big bread manufacturer. And that's telling, you know, that's supply and demand.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, we, what would I would, I would love to see in this market is for four or five more businesses that are very similar to us, get the same, you know, maybe they're the same scope or different scope, smaller, or larger, do the exact same like mill source source mill and, yeah. and with uh that they're, they're they're getting from around this area um that would be that would be fantastic that would mean maybe we're starting to make a difference in the, at least in this market you know? yeah uh, so that's yeah that's kind of what i'm uh, that's part of the motivation of what we're doing
0: well, best of luck. And for the people who are interested in trying some of the delicious breads that you've uh, and other products that you've been talking about, um, how can people find you and where can they learn about more where can they learn more about your work?
1: Yeah, mainly it's say it's our website or uh, we have a lot of links to some of the media that we've had. Uh, mm-hmm. but coming back to this, like the sustainability, we're really regionally focused. By regional, I mean the Twin Cities metro area. Every now and then we'll have people that say, Oh, can you ship us bread? I said, I can, it's gonna be very expensive. So yeah. go to find a local baker that support them. Um, but uh, generally we're we're looking at the Twin Cities Seven County metro area as our market, primarily the two urban cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. But I would say our website uh, certainly coming to the building. Getting a tour, you know, signing up for classes, those type of things. That's the best way to engage us right now. Um, you know, hopefully we can continue to do more.
0: Yeah. Sounds like it's worth worth a visit. Uh, yeah, it's a it's really a, it's a, unique place.
1: I mean, Mike's room, uh, they have these aging rooms that you can see their salamis, small and large caliber. Oh, wow. hanging, you know. It's it's a it's visually very compelling. You know, yeah. to see the salami just hanging there, <laughs> these huge bats of milk turning you know and uh for alamar yeah it's, it's an interesting space
0: wow cool and um you said it's it's all primarily local but for the people who are interested in tasting your bread i think probably best thing to do is just stop by the food building oh,
1: well, fly, in, fly in visit yeah. us i'm now with the tourism department of minnesota so come on i'm just kidding uh come on <laughs> yeah. i'm sure they'd love that actually so
0: yeah, sounds like fun. Well, Steve, thank you very much for your time and for um, for all the work you're doing. I think it's I think it's really important to support local. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five star rating, and also please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube, and that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much, and talk to you soon.